0: Um, we're going we're gonna to continue our study in the book of Romans by not going to Romans. Gotta go figure out how that works. But um, there's a couple of things that we wanted to see as we come out of chapter 3. And I think it's just um, worthwhile to maybe deviate for about three weeks. And then we'll come back to our verse-by-verse study in Romans. But uh, to give you just a quick preview of where we are going here these next three weeks. There's really two concepts we want to look at the next three weeks, and I'm really drawing these concepts from Romans chapter 3 verse 31 and Romans chapter 3 verse 21, okay? And so the first concept that we want to see is that this concept of faith righteousness, in other words, you can become righteous in God's sight, the righteousness equal to God's righteousness, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And what did he do for you? He died for your sins and he rose again. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we preach. In fact, we've got no other message than that. That's our message here, and that's the message of the Bible. But we're going to see that faith righteousness, verse 21 in Romans 3, is apart from the law. What we're going to look at the next couple of weeks is how it's witnessed about in the law and the prophets, how it's witnessed About in the Old Testament. See, God didn't just come up with a plan B, go, oh man, the Old Testament, man, that didn't really work out. Let me figure out what we're going to do in the New Testament now. Let me turn the page. Let me get to my contingency plan. That's not how God worked. In fact, God throughout the Old Testament was working to this day where he would reveal his son who would come and pay the penalty for the sins of the world. And God knew this all along. And so we're going to see how the Old Testament witnesses in a couple of areas. In fact, we're going to see that the Old Testament is very clear that the penalty for sin has always been death. Always been death. Always been death. We're going to see that even from the beginning. And by the way, if the penalty is death, then guess what penalty has to be paid? Yeah, it's not a trick question. It's, it's death. It's not good works. It's not church attendance. None of those things can get you into heaven. If there's a penalty and God says it's a penalty due, then death has to be the penalty. Death has to be paid. So we'll see that played out in the Old Testament. Um, We're also going to see that God promised a deliverer from sin and death. And that's going to be testified about all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, when you think about what the Old Testament is about, we're going to get a promise of a coming deliverer in Genesis chapter 3. And the rest of the Old Testament is about how God brought about that promise delivered. That's what the Old Testament's about. And so it testifies of this concept of faith, righteousness, even in the Old Testament. And then we're going to see that God clearly through the Old Testament will, will accept a substitutionary atoning death. And again, we're going to see lots of death in the Old Testament, but it's got a purpose. This isn't just some random death. This isn't a hunter, you know, just going out and killing as many deer as they can. This is, there's a purpose for this. There's a substitutionary atoning death. And so that's the first concept that we want to look at, and that comes right out of Romans 3.21, which says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The second concept that we're going to look at is, is what we covered the last time I was here a couple of weeks ago, which is found in Romans 3.31, that faith righteousness establishes the law. And that that seems contradictory because many people view the Old Testament, they say, well, yeah, people in the Old Testament were saved by the law. Or people in the Old Testament were saved by doing sacrifices. Or people in the Old Testament were saved and and whatever they want to insert, but largely it has to do with keeping the law or not keeping the law. And what Paul is going to tell you and what Paul is going to go on to say in the book of Romans is that's not true. That's not how anybody has ever been saved. In fact, God's righteousness has to come apart from the law because the only thing the law can show you and show me is that you don't have the righteousness needed to get to heaven. That's the only thing the law can do. It functions very efficiently, very effectively. It makes no mistakes. It's like a mirror and it shows us that we all have a sin problem. We all have a righteousness problem. And so it has to be apart from the law. But what we're going to see is that this faith righteousness concept doesn't side the law. Doesn't try to avoid the law. God developed and devised a plan that met and established the law. And how do we see that in the Old Testament? Well, we're going to see that God's perfect righteous standard as revealed in the law is not compromised and it's perfectly upheld. This is not like when you and I as parents, we tell our kids, if you do that one more time. like, and Have you ever said this? If you do that one more time, you're never coming out of your room again. And no, no one keeps that consequence. I mean, we all realize uh, sometimes as it's coming out of our mouth, like we, we should have just shut that down a couple words ago because that's, that's not how it's going to work out. But see, God doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oh, never mind, I, I went too far. Never mind, I really didn't mean that. God is going to perfectly uphold his law and the righteous standards. There's no, there's no sleight of hand. There's no magic going on. God is going to completely not compromise his law and uphold uh, his righteous standard perfectly. And then we're going to see that the justice that God demanded through his law is perfectly fulfilled in the gospel. See, this is the beauty of the Bible. When you've got one author, God, who knows everything, who's all powerful, see, he can write this in such a way that it doesn't contradict itself. It actually fits together like a glove. It puts he puts the puzzle pieces together. And so as we, as we look at these two concepts this week, we want to see that faith righteousness is testified about in the Old Testament. And we want to see that faith righteousness, this idea that you can be made righteous in God's sight through faith alone, in Christ alone, establishes the law, establishes what we find in the law. And so to do that, we need to go back to the beginning and hence where we read in Genesis this morning. So turn with me. Um, to the book of Genesis. We want to just start at the beginning. In the next three weeks, we want to just walk systematically through the Old Testament. Now, this isn't going to be a comprehensive study of the Old Testament. In fact, I know that I'm going to leave lots of details out that that are important. But in terms of stringing together this continuous story that we see Paul referring to in Romans, we're going to take key events and key concepts and just build the story. We're going to tell God's story uh, as, best, as best we can here over the next three weeks in terms of how this faith righteousness is established and witnessed um, in the Old Testament. And so when we see Adam created, he was created unique uh, amongst any person in the world because he enjoyed a unique friendship with the God of the universe. Very unique. Nobody else on earth. Him by himself. Him completely innocent him trusting, uh, if you will, every decision that he made to the goodness of God, trusting that the information that he got from God was accurate. It's like I have never had one of my kids just in the car one day and say, um, Dad, where was I born? And, oh, you were born in Texas, or you were born in Rockwall County, and or you were born in Virginia, and I've never had any one of my kids say, well, I tell you what, can you can you drive over to the courthouse right now and prove that to me? Why why not? Because kids take my word for it. You know, I used to joke and say, one of of my kids, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to take a a piece of paper like this and just teach them that that's blue, just to have fun with them. Because they would trust me. And they would get into arguments their whole life and say, no, that's blue. Because my dad told me it's blue. And so Adam had that kind of a unique relationship with God. God told him what things were. Adam believed it. Everything Adam learned was directly from God. He had this unique relationship with God. We see that Adam had some unique tasks. Look at chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 20. Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So why is a giraffe called a giraffe? Oh, well, because Adam named him. Yeah. And so along as we go with all the animals, this is a unique relationship that he's got with God. We see that uh, Adam also tended and kept the Garden of Eden. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now we know at this point the curse had not happened, so this was probably pretty easy. You know, plant the seed and it grows. (laughs) That's, That's my type of farming. I tend to kill everything I try to plant. But but in this case, Adam was tending and keeping this garden that God had created. We gather just by inference in Genesis 3.8 that God walked amongst him as a friend. Uh, we see this, um, this verses after the fall, but we see this concept that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so we, we sense there from inference that that probably happened, that God was spending time with Adam and Eve, instructing them. And so they, there was a friendship there. There was a, uh, an intimacy, if you will. And then we see in Genesis 2.25 that Adam was naked and not ashamed. Look at verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And, you know, this just gives us a beautiful picture of not hiding anything, just being completely transparent, being completely open with God, and not having anything to be ashamed of. Nothing too high, just completely transparent and open as it were. And then we see that God provided Adam with a helper, Eve. And he made all of the garden available to them except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here enters in our first law, if you will, our first rule, our first command that we find in the Bible. They were just, uh, they could eat of every tree they wanted to except for one of them. That was the test. That was the rule here. And you know, as you think about that, God was very good to them. God was extremely good. In fact, we were looking at creation this morning in Sunday school, and and, and that phrase is repeated over and over again. God saw it, and it was good. God saw it, and it was very good. Everything was in place for man and woman to enjoy not only relationship with one another, but fellowship and relationship with the God of the universe. Well, we all know The story um, because there was a problem that arised And, and God not only said don't eat of this tree but if you do there's going to be a consequence and so we find that consequence in Genesis 2 16 through 17 and the consequence is death in fact let's read it Genesis 2 16 and 17 and the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden you may freely eat But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. Now, one of the things that we want to put in perspective here is that, remember, at this point in time, Adam and Eve had no experience with death. Never seen it. Never had a loved one that died. Never seen an animal that died. Didn't have a concept of what death was. But they understood it was something they didn't want. They do understand that. In fact, you can kind of tell that in their response. But they didn't have a concept, no experience with this. And then we come into chapter 3, and we see that they disobeyed God by eating the fruit. And so we're going to see the consequence of this decision play out. Let's look at those verses as we we continue to study here. Chapter 3, verse 1, which says this, Now the serpent... Was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, you you notice how he spins God's words, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's he's deceptive, he's cunning, as verse 1 tells us. And that's not what God said. God, in fact, said the opposite. You can eat of any tree, every tree, except one, but he spins it. Has God said you shouldn't eat of every tree? Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. We don't know where Eve picked up, you shall not touch it. That wasn't in God's instructions. He said, you shall not eat it. Um, <clears throat> we don't know. I mean, there's been speculation. Maybe, Maybe Adam was the one that received the direct instruction from God to not eat of the tree. And as he passed it along to Eve, he might've said, you know, he might have said, you know, Eve, that tree right there, we're, we're not to eat of that tree. And, and I'm just imagining here. But Eve said, which one is it? And he said, well, that one right there, don't eat of it. In fact, Eve, just don't even touch that thing. Just like <laughs> stay away from it. I mean, who knows? That might have been how it went down. But for some reason, she adds that here. And as soon as she does, the serpent the serpent comes in and, and takes control of the conversation. He says in verse 13. Um, uh, Three, sorry, I missed my spot there. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then verse four, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And here's here's the interesting thing about this whole interaction here, because Satan questions something here. First time it's been questioned, it's the first doctrine that he questions in the Bible. What's the doctrine of? The doctrine of sin's consequence. See, Satan is still this day trying to convince people, oh, you're not going to die for your sin. You won't, you won't go to hell. In fact, we looked at that in Romans 1, didn't we? In fact, people are suppressing this truth. They know it. They know a God exists. They know he's got a righteous standard. They're holding it down. They're suppressing it in hopes that one day they won't have to face him. It's the ostrich in the sand approach. Let me put my head underneath the sand and hope it doesn't come true or just blatantly deny that God exists and that they won't face him in his righteous judgment one day. But notice Satan here, as early as the garden, he's already questioning this doctrine. And what, is, what did I say? One of the the testifying things in the Old Testament was, as it relates to faith righteousness, is this idea that sin produces death. The penalty for sin is death. That's been going on since the beginning of time. We see it here in Genesis. And that is the one thing that Satan questions here in his interaction with man and woman. You won't surely die. That's a, that's a bald-faced lie. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Is that true? That was true. Their eyes are going to be open. They would know good and evil. And then he goes on to say, and you will be like God. That's not true. That's false. Then he says, knowing good and evil. That is true. And you'll see that he, he mixes truth with error, truth with error. Nobody ever comes in and says, hey, listen up. I'm about to share false teaching with you today. Hey, get your pen out. I'm about to tell you a bunch of lies. Just write these down so you can be misled. Nobody does that. They always come in with a little bit of truth, a little bit of error, a little bit of truth, a little bit of error. And they learned it from the master of deception, which is Satan himself. And so verse 6, we know the story. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And so we see that they eat of the tree... And they're going to face the consequence of death, okay? So we kind of see this play out. Now, what's interesting is in the midst of all of these curses, as they are, are found out, in fact, you know, Adam hiding in the trees is like the little kid that says, hey, I didn't know mom and dad, I didn't eat cookies, and they got chocolate all over their face. I mean, the, the evidence was there. They had covered themselves. They were hiding from God. They had never done that before. And in the midst of all of these things going on, God pronounces a promise. God makes a startling promise. And his promise is that there's going to be a coming deliverer who's going to crush this serpent, going to crush Satan. By the way, interesting fact, um, we were we were teaching the Old Testament to the pastors in Liberia um, last week, and um, or two, two weeks ago. And, you know, it's interesting because everyone knows who the serpent is, right? The serpent's Satan. But, you know, what's interesting about that is Genesis 3 actually doesn't tell us that. We... It never indicates who he is. It just always refers to him as a serpent. We don't get this information until all the way back in Revelation twelve nine, where we finally get the identity of the serpent as Satan. So we're obviously we're taking the whole counsel of the Word of God and reading back what we understand, what's been revealed. But um, just just kind of an interesting factoid there. Um, Genesis three fifteen, he says this. The Lord is is speaking to the serpent here. He says, "I will put enmity." Between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel and The idea there bruise really has this idea of crushing, and so it 's it's, it's really this picture that we have um, if you If you could picture a, a poisonous snake and you trying to go over and kill it, by the way i wouldn 't recommend killing a poisonous snake by stepping on its head. I mean, it gets you a shovel, you know, a sho- shovel and chop that head off. But, but it kind of pictures this concept that as, as, as this deliverer was going to step on the serpent's head, that serpent was going to take a, a bite out of his heel and bruise his heel. But as he did that, he would, he would crush the serpent's head. And so we know from, from biblical uh, revelation, as God has progressively revealed himself, this refers to Jesus and the work that he would do in crushing Satan in handling the problem that sin caused, which is death, uh, a lack of righteousness. And so we're going to see that, that God, even back in Genesis 3.15, had this thing all figured out. Okay, When Paul says that the Old Testament witnesses to faith righteousness, and that the Old Testament or the, the faith righteousness establishes the law, we see it as far back as Genesis 3.15. And so um, it, rather than changing the rules... Or miscarrying justice or saying, oh, Adam and Eve, never mind. <laughs> I spoke too soon. I won't really, you won't really die because of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to handle this a different way. God mentions his plan for dealing with it. See, God doesn't hide things. God doesn't show things. In fact, what did we learn in Romans 3.25? God is pointing his finger right there at a public day in history when Jesus died for the sins of the world. It was a day in history. It was 2,000 years ago. It was an actual day in history where the Son of God actually got nailed to a cross and actually died and paid the penalty for our sins. And then he actually was buried and he actually rose again on the third day. And God did it all in public view, not hiding, not miscarrying justice, not doing it in a back office where nobody can see it. He made it explicit for the entire world to see that he might be lifted up, that all men may see what God did in terms of dealing with the sin problem. But it all started right here in the, in the promise back in Genesis 3.15. And so we see that this promised deliverer is going to deal with sin and its consequence. Its consequence is death. Now, more to come on this later. But as mentioned, the seed of faith righteousness is sown here. See, God's solution for sin's consequence and man's enemy is the promised one. That means that his solution to sin's consequences is not your problem. It's not something you have to figure out. It's not something you have to put together. It's not something you have to work really hard at to get it, to get it done. God is saying, even right here in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to make the solution for you. I'm going to provide a provision for you. And so this whole concept of looking to somebody else, looking away from myself, to God for the solution is sown right here in Genesis 3:15. And so when we talk about faith, remember that faith looks away from yourself to God's provision. Faith doesn't have one eye on God's provision and one eye on myself. That's not true biblical faith because now I'm resting in what God is doing and I'm resting in myself. Thus by definition, I'm not resting completely in what God has done or provided. And so we see even this concept of faith righteousness is sown right here. But before we go on, we've got to define death. You know, what is death from a biblical perspective? Well, death simply means separation. By its very nature, it means separation. We're going to look at three kinds of death here. Um, In fact, some of them are very familiar to to you. Um, Physical death is the one we're most familiar with. In fact, when you go to a funeral and you have an open casket funeral of a friend or a loved one, you know that your friend or loved one is not there. Now, their body's there, but they're not there. And physical death is where we have separation of spirit from the body. And, um, you know, this is, the, again, the one that we're most familiar with. This is when we think of death, we typically think of physical death. But understand, as a, as a general definition, it just means separation. Here in this case, it's separation of spirit from the body. This type of death happened to Adam about 900 years later. So the consequence of of his sin was death. And and he experienced the physical death aspect of that consequence 900 years after they ate from the tree. Now, I could have represented that. I forgot to grab it this morning, but um, this is probably plastic here, so I won't rip this. But if I was to rip a tree branch off of a tree... Um, and set it up here this morning, it would, if I did it this morning, it would still look very green, very, very alive. In fact, if it was a tree that had sap in it, you could, your fingers would get sticky. I mean, it's, it would still have sap running through its branch. And you say, was that alive or dead? Well, um, it's dead. How do I know it's dead? Because it's separated from its life source. It may not look dead, but it's in the process of dying. And so that day when they ate of the fruit, they started the process of physical death. And it culminated 900 years later. But another aspect of death that we want to look at is this concept of spiritual or relational death. And it's separation of God from mankind. And we see that uh, this is even illustrated in, in the fact that they hid from God. They they tried to remove themselves from God's presence after they sinned. And so they experienced this kind of death immediately. It happened immediately when they removed themselves. Isaiah 59, 2 says that our sins have separated us from God. That's a death. That's a spiritual death, as the Bible talks about. And so this word death, you shall surely die. It's a loaded word in the sense of it's got multiple aspects to it. And, and probably the third one is the one that we want to pay attention to the most. Because in the third one, we talk about what the Bible refers to as the second death. And this is the death that occurs after one dies physically. And this is when man is separated from God forever for eternity in, a, in the lake of fire. Again, the place prepared for Satan and his angels. And this is the one that every one of us can avoid because God's made a solution to take care of this death penalty. Now, we're still going to face physical death. We're all part of that ultimate statistic. You know, 10 out of 10 people die. You're going to be part of that statistic. I'm sorry to say, and so am I. 10 out of 10 people die. But in terms of this second death, this is something that we can avoid. This is something that the promise deliver that he mentions in Genesis 3.15 is going to take care of for us. Again, God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, And you know, as it relates to Adam and Eve, this was their destiny. If God didn't intervene, this is where they would end up. And so we see death as defined biblically. Now, when we look at this, we, we see a big dilemma. And, I, and we describe it that way for us. Because how can God say he's going to do something in terms of a consequence and penalty, and then how can he not do it? How can he not carry that out. And so for the human mind, this is what it looks like to us. We're like, what in the world? How's this going to work out? And so God has got this all figured out. In fact, we know that if he's completely just, and he is, he's got to judge sin. He set up a rule, and this is just simple. He set up a rule. It was broken, and now in order to remain just, he's got to execute or carry out the consequence, period. He's, he's got to do that. Even human judges, Judging on human law, if they don't judge according to law, they're viewed as, as impartial. They're viewed as unjust. Um, in fact, many of them who are, who are elected in the office, when those of us find out some of the shenanigans they've been pulling, we don't elect them back in the office. We put somebody else in there because we want somebody to judge to the letter of the law. What's, what was the intent of the law? We want them to judge according to that intent. Well, God, the perfect judge of the universe, Judges that way. He's going to give everybody what they deserve. And this creates a dilemma because then nobody could be saved or could they. (laughs) You know, the other balancing act, if you want to say it, is, is that God is completely loving. So he's completely just on one hand, but he's completely loving on the other. And he's not more just than he is loving or more loving than he is just. He's completely balanced in these areas. So based on that, he doesn't want to destroy Adam and Eve. He loves them. Even though they disobeyed him, even though they broke his command, he still loves them. So how is God going to put together his love and his justice? And we see an indication even here in Genesis as to how he does this. But the question becomes, how can God remain just and punish sin as he should, but still love and not destroy the one who sinned? It well, sounds like a dilemma from a human perspective. Because we say, oh, you, you can't. That's, that's a mind blower right there. I don't know how to figure that one out. And then our million dollar question is really two parts. Um, and you could, we can could insert our name in here. How can Adam get rid of his sin with all its consequences, death, uh, and gain a righteousness equal to God's righteousness so he can be accepted back into his presence? And see, we've got a, a huge dilemma here. Now, Adam and Eve know they've got a dilemma because what do they do in the story? They try to cover their nakedness. They try to start making provision for what they know is wrong, relational. And they they start to put on these fig leaves. And so they clothe themselves up. We know that God rejected their efforts at covering up their outside appearance. Their outward appearance was completely rejected by God. That is not how you deal with the sin problem. And so many people are trying to deal with the sin problem in similar ways today, except we put religious hats on it. We say, well, if we come to church, if we do good works, if we do this, if we quit doing this, then God is going to be forced to accept us. If we do enough good works that outweigh our bad works, if we even get baptized, I mean, baptism's in the Bible, right? And if we do this that's in the Bible and we read our Bible and we pray, we do all of these things that we hear about in the Bible, even those things will gain us acceptance with God. And see, that doesn't gain its acceptance with God. Because what did God say in Genesis 3.15? I'm going to provide the solution for you. I'm going to send you a promised deliverer. And I'm going to take care of your issue for you. See, outward fig leaf sewing rituals, which is all religion is. It's just a fig leaf sewing party. Corporately. That's all it is. That's not going to take care of the issue. That's not going to take care of the consequences of sin. People can have fig leaf sewing parties from today until the day they die, and that won't take care of the issue. God has to take care of the issue, and God has devised a way. And even back in Genesis, he, he begins to show us what that way is going to look like. Instead, God's solution involves something different, death, just as justice demanded. You know, it's so interesting we get so caught up and so distracted but if we just keep it simple god keeps it simple for us the penalty for sin is death so what penalty has to be paid death it's just real simple it's like one plus one equals two i mean it it really really fits together there's no sleight of hand here if god says there has to be a death then there has to be a death period and that's why good works last time i checked that's not death Try try that, you know, you're on death row. Oh, judge, I'm just going to live my life doing good works. No, my man, death is the penalty. So you're going to have to face that penalty with your death. In the same way, death is the penalty. A death has to be paid. Now, I want to get into Genesis 3.21 because this is where I believe we see the solution. Because God is going to kill an animal. There's going to be a death of an animal in the garden, and God is going to clothe Adam and Eve with the skins from that animal. Now, how do I know there's a death? Okay, so let's, let's look at Genesis 3.21. And it's real subtle, and the reason uh, it's subtle is because God just continues to reveal progressively more details of his plan. But looking back, Genesis 3.21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothe them. And you say, wow, that's a big leap, John. How do you see death there? I, I mean, that's crazy. Well, he, here's, here's how I see death here, and here's where, where I, I would understand that here in the scriptures. We just got out of Genesis 1. And remember how God created the world? How did He create the world? Perfect. He created it out of nothing, He spoke it into existence. Now, I want you to notice that word in verse twenty one made the word made tunics of skin that is a word that indicates that he took something from from something that existed, okay He took something from something that already existed this wasn't God now could God have spoken clothing into existence? Yeah, he could have spoken. Uh, What's the, what's fancy clothing? I mean, Armani suit. I mean, he could have, he could have spoken an Armani suit onto Adam. No problem for God. He couldn't do that. Or he could do that, but he didn't do that. He didn't just speak clothing into existence. What that word made indicates is that he used something that was already created and he made it from something that was already in existence. Well, he tells us what he made tunics of skin. And so that, you know, just deduction says he's coming from an animal. And again, we get further explanation. If that was the only thing we had in the Bible, that's ah, kind of a stretch. But we get further explanation as we go through the Old Testament that the Old Testament is testifying to something here. And then what the Old Testament is testifying is, is to is simply this. There's a substitutionary atoning death. See, when God says the penalty for sin is death, God is now letting us know that he's going to accept a substitute death in our place. Now, that's very important because as it relates to the promised deliverer, as we'll see, and I'm getting way ahead because I'm just getting excited. I can't, some of this stuff, like I want to keep until like the third week. Some of this stuff you already know, but, but it's hard sometimes because you, when you see Christ in something, you just want to talk about Christ. And so what we see here is that even through this promised deliverer, God is showing that he's going to accept a substitutionary death on our behalf, And we're going to see the Old Testament just testify to this over and over and over again. And so we see this in the life of Adam and Eve. In fact, we gain further knowledge later that Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so all this... All this massive religious teaching that's been taught over the centuries about, well, if you pay this much money, you're going to get forgiveness of sins. If you crawl on your knees for 18 miles up this hill on shards of glass, you're going to get forgiveness of sins or whatever other penance that people come up with. Penance, Forgiveness of sins doesn't come except through death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So God is is putting all this stuff together even as early as Genesis chapter 3. And that's why when Paul says that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, testify to this manner of faith righteousness, he means it. He's not just making this up. In fact, I think this was probably his message as he went into Jewish synagogues, each place that he traveled from town to town. Your Messiah had to die. He had to suffer. And then he showed them why. And then he said, oh, by the way, this Messiah, he's, he was, he's been here. His name's Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified on a cross, was buried, and he rose again. And if you don't believe me, there's... All these witnesses, let me, let me tell you who you can talk to. They've seen him. We've seen him. And that was the message that he preached. Now, we see that a new era began, which really impacts you and I and everyone else who has lived since then. And that is this removal from the garden and the sin nature that comes with this, this place of death now that Adam and Eve were in. And so we see that God drove Adam and Eve from the garden. He, he expels them from the garden. Part of the reason was is if they had eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived in their sinful state forever. And so it was an act of grace to drive them from that. But notice where all of their children were born. They were born outside the garden. Genesis 5.3 tells us that like begets like. In other words, sinful man reproduces sinful man. And to prove that out, just go one generation and you got a murder. You got the first murder of human life. One generation from Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, which we'll look at their stories next, or their story next. But here's another thing to consider. And when we get to Romans 5, we'll bring this out in a lot more detail. But consider this, the law wasn't even given yet. The Mosaic law had not even been given. But guess what we start to see in Genesis from the, from the very beginning in chapter five shows us death. Everyone died, except for Enoch, but everyone died. And so what did that tell us? That sin, this position of sin, now produced death. Even though they weren't breaking a law like Adam had broken, it wasn't like they were all sneaking back into the garden and taking a bite off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and thus they had death. But now they were in a positional state. Adam produces sinful man, and now they will pay for their consequence of sin and so um, not as if they needed help because now now we see Cain because he's a sinner now he commits acts of sin he murders and we're going to see that the the generations following didn't get much better but Cain and Abel also uh, teach us something as we relate it to the Old Testament in Genesis 4 let's start in verse 3 and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord now, now I only, let me stop there because Cain was not thumbing his nose at God. Cain was a religious man. Cain was actually bringing an offering. If he was irreligious, he'd have been like, Psh, go ahead, Abel. Yeah, I'll catch up with you later. Yeah, you go sacrifice. I'm going to stay here. That's not what he did. In fact, when you look at what he brought and how he had to bring it together, I would venture to say he put more work into his offering than Abel did. More effort. Because when you take in the fact that he plants a seed, he waters it, he cultivates it, you know, maybe he fertilizes it. I don't know what he had access to in those days or what he knew. But he planted the seed. He watered it. He took care of it. He harvested it. He prepared it and gave it to God. Cain worked harder than Abel did. And we're going to see how that goes for him. Because God doesn't want you and I to work hard to get, get to heaven. He wants you and I to stop working so hard. And trust in the one who already did the work necessary to get you there. Jesus paid it all. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus rose again. See, Jesus has done it all. And so we need to quit working. Some of us need to understand that we don't work or earn our way to heaven. And if we want to go the way of Cain, who worked really, really hard, we'll see what the outcome is for him. Verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. Judging by the events, and again, we're putting together progressive revelation over time, it, it seems probable that God had provided some instruction as to what would be acceptable way to bring sacrifices and what wouldn't be. Now, how do we, how do we get that from Genesis 3? Well, let me, let me have you, if you can, if you will, just turn with me to Hebrews 11, chapter 4. Hebrews 11, chapter 4. Because the writer of Hebrews makes an interesting comment or an interesting observation here as it relates to Abel, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. And he says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. There's a couple things we want to notice there. Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Okay, And what we're going to see when we jump back into Romans chapter 4 is that everybody of all time has been saved by grace through faith. That's the message of the Bible. That has not changed since Genesis 3, Genesis 4. We're saved by faith. That's where faith righteousness comes from. It comes from the very beginning. It's, it, nothing's changed over time. We're going to see that in the life of Abraham. Paul's going to bring that out in Romans 4. We're going to see that in the life of David. Paul's also going to bring that out in Romans 4. But it's in the life of every saved person in the Old Testament. Noah, Enoch, anybody you want to name, they got saved by faith through grace. That's how people got saved. But notice, as we talk about faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He um, He had faith. And, you know, when we talk about faith, it's, it's one of those things, I, our culture, you just got to fight against the definitions of the culture sometimes because people just say things that they don't know what they, they mean by them. And so it, it breeds a lot of confusion. And so some people will, will say if they're delivered from a, a dangerous storm, well, my faith got me through. And you, and you kind of start viewing faith as this nebulous, like, force like a Star Wars kind of thing or or something. I don't know what it I don't know how it's viewed. But remember biblical faith has to have an object on which to rest. So if Abel by faith offers a sacrifice, then he's resting on some truth that God has given him. He's trusting in something that God has told him. And so when we look at this this idea that God probably gave some instruction, I think that's pretty much backed up in a Hebrews 11:4 that Abel by faith, trusting in some kind of revelation from God, offered this sacrifice. Now, why was his accepted and why was Cain's not? Well, I believe that God was consistent in his message saying that man's sin debt could only be paid if there was a death. Did Cain's, did Cain's offering, did it, did it experience a death? Well, I mean, I guess you could say the fruit died. I don't, I don't know. Um, but in terms of, of a life in and, and blood, in Hebrews 9:22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. There wasn't a qualified death in Cain's offering. Abel brought an animal. By faith, he trusted God's word, and this animal provides this illustration of what we're going to see going forward, because the question becomes, why animal substitutionary sacrifices? Why was that such a thing in the Old Testament? Well, I believe why that was such a thing is simply this. God is illustrating, he's giving us visual aids all throughout the Old Testament as to how his promised deliverer was going to take care of the million dollar question. How would God take care of man's sin debt and how would God provide man with a righteousness equal to his own? He's going to do it through the promised deliverer. And these animal substitutionary sacrifices, they simply pointed to the work that he was going to do. And so when, when Jesus showed up on the scene and John the Baptist points over to him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John had made that connection. John understood what the Old Testament was testifying about. And so we see this couple of illustrations in the animal sacrifices. We see the illustration of substitution. Normally man would die for his own sin. But based on certain future events, i.e. the promised deliverer dying for the sins of the world, God was saying he would accept an innocent animal's death in the place as a substitute, in the place of man as their substitute. And what is the entire Old Testament about? Animal sacrifice, one after another. Again, illustrating that the penalty for sin is death. The Old Testament testifies to that all the way throughout. See, Abel deserved to die for his own sin, but God in his mercy allowed an innocent animal to die to his place. Now, why did he do that? Because one day he knew what the promised deliverer was going to do. Die in Abel's place and actually pay for his sins. Not just cover them up temporarily, but pay for them so he could wipe them away. And so we see that first uh, reason, illustration of substitution in the animal sacrifices. And then the second illustration, this, this word atonement, which just means covering. This shed blood would would cover man's sin temporarily. And so what it represented is is God looked down from heaven. He saw that they were trusting in his provision through this shed blood of an animal. And it just provided a covering. But it didn't take care of sin, as we learn in Hebrews. It didn't take away the sin. It simply covered sin temporarily. But through the work of Jesus Christ that God knew was coming, he saved them on credit. We looked at that in Romans chapter 3. And so based on God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice and his rejection of Cain's offering, it's safe to say that God did not accept Cain's offering because it didn't shed blood. His offering didn't shed blood. It didn't represent what God was showing uh, as it relates to the promised deliverer. Again, remember what the penalty of sin was? It was death. And so Cain had his own ideas. Cain had his own fig leaf sewing party, except this time it had graduated. Now it's, now it's a religious offering. And what we're going to see is that over the course of the Old Testament, there are fig leaf sowing parties going on everywhere and at all times, and it just changes faces. It just changes approaches. Man is always trying to figure out the answer to this question on their own. And God, from the beginning, wants us to trust in what he has done. And he's going to show that as we continue this study in the next few weeks. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for um, just the fact that you've got this all under control. We, we are so, uh, dependent upon you. We, we need you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We, we bask and enjoy and, and just delight in your grace. Um, never, never really f- understanding why you would choose to, to, um, deal with us in grace, Lord, but we, we praise you for it. We want to sing about it for eternity. Um, I know that will be on our lips and on our hearts uh, forever going forward. And so um, we thank you for Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. And just continue to um, be with us as we study uh, through the Old Testament the next couple of weeks. Uh, we pray uh, for the upcoming uh, Resurrection Sunday where we just set apart uh, one day of the year to celebrate your resurrection. But Lord, may, may in our lives, may that be a, a constant celebration, a daily celebration and remembrance Um, And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.